Well, hi, everyone. Um, welcome. Let me add my welcome to Melissa's. I'm Janet B. Recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. I am happy to be here tonight to talk about one of my favorite topics, um, God's search and rescue mission for Dr. Bob. Um, we're all allowed to have our own concept of God. So here's mine. God created the world in six days took a day off to rest, and instead of spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix, he decided he'd spend his time launching search and rescue missions for addicts. So here's the story of one of Dr. Bob's most, of, excuse me, of one of God's most successful search and rescue missions. The story of Dr. Bob, one of the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, the other being Bill Wilson. And in the big book, Dr. Bob's story comes right after the chapter, A Vision for You. So if you have your big book and you wanna kind of follow along, right now we're on page, we're on page 171. Um, so before we talk about how God rescued Dr. Bob, let's get a little background on him. He starts out by saying, I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. And he goes on to say everything was fine. His parents were fine. The town was fine. They were moral, good. He had a good childhood. Everything was great, but he became an addict anyway. And I think this is really important because a lot of us say, well, the reason I'm a compulsive eater is because dot, dot, dot. And then usually we blame someone and usually it's our parents. Um, but in our big book, we can look one example in the story, Freedom from Bondage on page 544, the author says she didn't become an alcoholic because of what happened to her in her childhood. She said, I am the result of the, I am the, result of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. So again, it's always on us once we're grown up. Are we going to forgive? Or are we going to blame? Because ultimately, the fact that I'm an addict has absolutely nothing to do with how I, how I was raised. Um, Dr. Bob says, page 172, I was an only child, which perhaps engendered the selfishness, which played an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. Now, of course, if we're only children or if we only have one child, we shouldn't panic and say, oh, my, the stage is set for addiction because Dr. Bob isn't saying it's the only child part that did it. He said his selfishness played a part and he digs in and defines it. He says, my whole life seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes or privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. I mean, that's interesting. We always talk about this illness as being progressive, but we usually think of it just in terms of food, right? Like our binge is getting worse. But he's saying even before his alcoholic binges, his selfishness and self-centeredness got worse. And right, our book on page 62, the selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. So Dr. Bob was right on the money by saying selfishness and self-centeredness was the root. And in my big book, I actually drew like a little picture of a tree 
and I drew roots under the tree and I wrote the word selfish and self-centered by the roots. The thing about roots is you don't usually see them. So we can be really good at hiding our selfishness and self-centeredness. But on a tree, you do see the fruit. So I drew three little circles like apples. And in one, I wrote an R for resentment. In the other, an F for fear. And in the third, an H for harms to others. Those are the fruits of this illness. So there's Dr. Bob saying he's selfish and self-centered. And you could see it by the example he gives. He said, my parents made me go to church. And basically, I'll show them. I decided when I was old enough, I'd never go to church. Okay, so he turns his back on God. But he makes an exception. He says, except when circumstances made it seem wise to absent myself. So basically, he was using church, right? If people would be mad at him or if it would make him look good and help him get a good job. Um, he used church and God in a self-centered, self-serving way. So it made me think um, something we should ask ourselves. Do we use our religion? Do we use God? Do we ignore God, except when we want to treat him like a genie in the bottle? Like, God, things aren't working out too well. So please come out of your bottle, make everything good again. And if you do, thank you. And I'll call you when I need you again. And if you don't, well, then I'll just ignore you even more. Never worked for me. Never worked for Dr. Bob. So Dr. Bob continues talking about the progression of his selfishness. And he says, through college through medical school, he was drinking. And something I noticed when I read this story, um, he says on page 174, it says that his father, when he was in college, made a long journey in the vain endeavor to get him straightened out, but it had little effect. So Dr. Bob had a dad who really loved him and who we don't know, maybe he died before Dr. Bob ever got sober but he loved him and Dr. Bob knew it. He mentioned his dad's attempt to help him twice in his story. And it made me think of times we might do something for people out of love and never see the result. You know, imagine if Dr. Bob's dad had said, I'm not gonna try to help my son again. I'm not seeing any results here. None of us would be here, but he still tried. And that teaches me is that I should love and I should give even when it's difficult, and even when I don't see fruit. So Bob gets his degree and becomes Dr. Bob. Um, every mom's dream, right? Bottom of page 174. Um, but he says, by this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically, and in hope of relief, voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. Okay, this is a guy who wanted to get better. I mean, imagine six times he locked himself up and he's a doctor. So people knew him, but he said, I need to be locked up because I just can't stop. So he had a desire to stop drinking, but desire alone doesn't do it. On page 24, it says that at the certain point in the drinking of every abnormal drinker, or for us, the eating of every abnormal eater, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. 
Dr. Bob had a desperate desire to stop, but he didn't have the power. When the obsession struck, he did what any addict would do. He got his friends to smuggle alcohol in for him or he'd steal the alcohol in the hospital. So he got worse. He's in rehab getting worse. And that was like me in my first seven years in OA. I went to meetings. I went through about 50 different sponsors. I did the work they told me, but I got progressively worse. I went from binging and purging maybe twice a week to throwing up six times a day and needing major surgery on my esophagus. Um, like Dr. Bob, I had the desire and I did a bunch of work, but I was like someone with diabetes who goes to Diabetics Anonymous without ever being taught how to inject insulin. I got worse and so did Dr. Bob. Um, so let's see. Yeah, he's in rehab, getting stuff smuggled in. And I actually heard a woman say that she was in a food rehab and she sent herself a candy gram. Um, unless we're safe and protected by God, there's no safe place for us. We have no choice when it comes to food. So there's Dr. Bob not getting better. There's his dad trying to help him. He sends a doctor out from his hometown. Guess he pays a doctor to leave and go to where his son was. And okay, Dr. Bob's okay for a bit, but then prohibition starts. The country's going dry. So it's illegal in the entire United States to have alcohol. So he says, I'll get drunk now because in a month when prohibition starts, it'll be illegal and that'll cure it. But of course there were bootleggers he was able to get alcohol anyway. But it reminds me of kind of what I'd been guilty of when I was binging. And that's the, I'll start tomorrow syndrome, right? So here's Dr. Bob, I'll start when prohibition starts. Or for me, it was always, I'll start tomorrow. Or I'll start Monday, the first of the month, the first of the year. Um, I'll start tomorrow. And what that really is, is thinking my cure is my pillow right? That if I put my head on it for about mm, seven hours, I'm suddenly going to be cured. And I know they have commercials for something called like a miracle pillow, right? This would be a true miracle pillow. We put our heads on it and we're cured, but it didn't work for Dr. Bob and didn't work for me either. So there's Dr. Bob goes on drinking, passing out at home, going to work, just so he could be at the hospital long enough to keep his job and earn money to drink. And he's, um, and that was it. Like, that's the only reason he kept going to work. Let me find my page. So he kept this up for 17 years, 17 years. And he says, during this time, I used to promise my wife, my friends, my kids, I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober, even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. Again, he had a sincere desire to stop, but desire doesn't do it, right? Imagine someone who has cancer going to his wife, his friends, and his kids and saying, I promise you, I will make my cancer cells stop multiplying. It would be heartbreaking because we would know that person had zero power to make his cancer cells stop multiplying. And Dr. Bob had zero power 
to make himself stop drinking, just like I had zero power to make myself stop binging. So Dr. Bob continued on like this. On page 178, he talks about a group of people he found, and he says, they attracted me because of their seeming poise, health, and happiness. So this was the Oxford group, just by way of history. It was a Christian spiritual group that helped people with different problems. And he was attracted by their poise, poise, a self-confidence, not based on pride. It's based on a belief that God's got my back and that God's taking care of me so I can be comfortable in any situation. And that's what these people had. He said they had great freedom from embarrassment. They were at ease on all occasions, appeared healthy, but most of all, they seemed happy. So again, that's a trait we should have in recovery, that people can look at us and they don't say, oh my gosh, I know she's in recovery, but she looks so sad, like all this work she's doing to help others and stay abstinent. It's dragging her down. She has like no time to wash her hair or do anything fun. We are not supposed to be like that. We are supposed to exude happiness, joy, and freedom. And that is our right. That Those are our rights when we work this program. It's a fruit of this program. So Dr. Bob, he's no dummy. He looks at himself. He sees he's ill at ease. His health was at the breaking point and he's thoroughly miserable. And he said, I sense they had something I didn't have from which I might profit. And I learned it was something of a spiritual nature which didn't appeal to me very much. So he was honest. It's like he said, okay, they have what I want, but it takes spiritual work. And he said, okay, I don't like it. But he said, nah, I guess it can do no harm. So he gave the matter time and study for two and a half years, but still got drunk every night. And isn't that the way that I was? I was reading program literature while I was eating compulsively. I was going to meetings knowing that I was going to leave and eat compulsively. And by the way, that's why Melissa and I always allow questions here because we never want anyone who's sitting here struggling to just be quiet, log off at nine o'clock and leave. Let, you know, let people help you. Let us love on you and give you, you know, hopefully good information. Um, but, you know, Dr. Bob, it was like someone having cancer and reading a manual on how chemo works. But if we're not injecting or ingesting the chemo, we're not going to get better. And that was Dr. Bob reading, but not getting better. Um, and he also says his wife's faith kept him alive during this hard time. How come? Like, what's the correlation between his wife's faith and him getting better? because faith actually does something in the spiritual world. Faith is currency in the spiritual world. It leads us to communicate with God. And maybe it was her faith, her whispered prayers that led God to say, my next search and rescue mission will be for her husband, her husband. Or maybe it was because at that point, Dr. Bob said at one of the Oxford group meetings held at the home of Henrietta Cyberling, remember that name, it'll come up again. Um, she was definitely on God's search and rescue team. But she, at her house, Dr. Bob said one night, guys, I have this confession to make. I'm an alcoholic. 
And I mean, I can just picture them, you know, chuckling behind their hands, like, Bob, tell us something we don't already know. Um, they all knew he was an alcoholic. And Henrietta said, we'll pray for you. And there they were praying for them. So their faith, coupled with Dr. Bob's wife's faith, I mean, how could God uh, ignore all those prayers coming up on behalf of this guy? Um, so what was the result? Well, we're going to go back a little to A Vision for You, which we um, studied on Thursday. And there on page 155, we find, you know, our other hero, Bill Wilson, um, who didn't live anywhere near Dr. Bob, but just happened to be there on a business trip, newly sober business deal, gone down the tubes, not in good health, no money, physically weak. And he said, I better do something. So he went to this payphone and there was a list of half a dozen churches. And he said, I need to somehow find like a priest, a minister, someone who's going to give me a drunk to try to help because I need it. And he called the first five and got nowhere. And did he say, well, I tried five times. Uh, I'm done. He didn't. The sixth call, he got a pastor who said, I'll get you in touch with this woman who has a spiritual group at her house. Maybe she can help. So Bill Wilson called, guess who? Yep, Henrietta. And when she answers the phone, he says, my name is Bill. I'm in town for business. I'm newly sober. Do you have a drunk that I can help? And she simply said, we've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. She knew that her prayers were going to work. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that, you know, God answered my prayers. It was like, yeah, we prayed for help for Bob. We didn't know how the help would come, but we knew it would come. Because God isn't limited by how we think things will happen. She might have thought he would get sober in the Oxford group, but she said, we've been expecting you. So what happened? She invited Bill over and she called Dr. Bob's wife and said, can you bring Bob over here tomorrow to talk to this guy? And Dr. Bob said, fine, but I'm not going to stay more than 15 minutes. So he went, he met with Bill and what did Bill do? Well, instead of getting all spiritual and telling him about how great the Oxford group was, he shared stories about how he used to drink and how he would say, I'm just going to have one, but would keep drinking until he pretty much lost everything. And so he's telling these things to Bob. And I'm sure Dr. Bob was saying things like, yeah, I drink like that too. I did that too. So that 15 minutes turned into over six hours and that's something about Bill. He was willing to put in six hours, not counting all the prep work he did. He called Dr. Silkworth and had a conversation about how he could help this drunk he was about to meet. He put in the time. Um, and Dr. Bob was willing to do the work, but not willing enough. On page 155, it says, a spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary. But the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. Why, he argued, should he foolishly admit his problem to his clients? He would do anything, he said, but that. And as we'll see, his but that would get him into trouble. So Bill stayed with Bob for three weeks and kept working with him. 
Bob stopped drinking. And then about three weeks in, he went to a medical conference and he got drunk there, unfortunately. Um, he gets drunk on the way home. He wakes up drunk at a friend's house, not even knowing how he got there. The friend called his wife who called Bill. And what did Bill do? Did he do what a lot of people would do and say, you know what? I spent three weeks with you. I worked with you so you would get better. How dare you do this to me? And he didn't say, I told you so that you shouldn't go away with so little time under your belt. I'm on the next train back to New York. Goodbye and good luck. He didn't say any of that. Here's what Dr. Bob said he did. He said that Bill came and got me home and to bed. He took him home to put him to bed. Think about putting a drunk alcoholic to bed. Bob probably smelled. Bill probably took the shoes off his dirty feet and covered him with a blanket. And Bill stayed with him. Um, there's an interesting line here on page 180 that some of us have probably puzzled over. It says, in the morning, he gave him one glass of beer. And I'm thinking, why on earth did he give him like a glass of beer the next day? But the reason he did it was that Dr. Bob was scheduled to do a surgery that only he could do. Um, and this is a couple days after he got back from this trip gone bad. And he was shaking so badly Bill gave him one glass of beer to steady his hand so that he could perform the surgery. So this is not to say, right, that if someone goes out, when they come back, we hand them a Hershey bar. We don't do that. Um, this was for a specific reason. And Dr. Bob did the surgery, which, by the way, was successful. And then Bob never drank again. Because right after that surgery, he went around town and told all the people he didn't want to tell, I'm an alcoholic. He did that. So his, his I'll do anything but that turned into, I'll do anything, period. And we know that's critical. It tells us that if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? Um, so Dr. Bob became willing and he never drank again. And he spends the last couple of pages in his story talking about his recovery and giving us like a lot of pearls of wisdom. He says, okay, you may be asking, what did that man, Bill, do or say that was different from what others had said or done? Because, you know, we can assume he's read the Bible, he's read spiritual literature, been around spiritual people. He was a doctor, so he had medical information. First, he says, Bill gave him correct information. And I would couple that with love. Bob wasn't a project to Bill. He loved him. We should never make our sponsees feel like they're a project to us. There was love. If Bill was going to take a drunk man home and take his shoes off and put him to bed and stay with him. So love coupled with good information. And Dr. Bob says of far more importance was the fact he was the first living human with whom I had ever talked, who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. And that comports with what it says in the forward to the third edition, that recovery begins 
when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. But why? Why don't they say that recovery begins when I take a certain step? I think it's because when one addict talks to another, something happens. There's more than a conveying of information. There's a transmission. Bill Wilson was transmitting something to Dr. Bob. I looked up the definition of transmission. It says something like light, heat, sound, electricity, or other energy passes through a medium, kind of like a telephone transmitting sound waves. And I think that in God's search and rescue mission for Dr. Bob, God used Bill Wilson to transmit God's own love and concern for Bob. And if we go to the last page of A Vision for You, page 164, it talks about this kind of transmission. It says you can't transmit something you haven't got. So see to it that your relationship with him, with God, is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. That's the condition. See that our relationship with God is right. Well, what does that mean? Well, remember when Bill first got sober and he was in the hospital, he said, the thought came to me that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn could help others. But before Bill could be fit for this work, he had to see to it that his relationship with God was right. How did he do it? Page 164 summarizes it. Abandon yourself to God as you understand him. Step three, give God a blank check with our lives. Admit your faults to God. Okay, that's a little hard. And to your fellows. Well, that's a lot hard sometimes. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Steps eight and nine, give freely of what you find and join us. And Bill did that. He made those calls, those six calls. Um, and then he spends all that time with Dr. Bob. And even after Bob probably breaks his heart by coming home drunk, he keeps with it. And by the way, every now and then someone will say something like, bad about Bill Wilson, like, oh, he did this thing or that thing that wasn't right. And what I say is like, first of all, I don't know what Bill did or didn't do, and it's none of my business. But more important, look at these great things Bill did for me, for you, for us. I think that's what we think of when we think of Bill Wilson. Um, so page 180, Dr. Bob says, it's the most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. He says he regained his health, his self-respect, and his home life is now ideal. And then he says he spends a great deal of time passing this on to others who want and need it badly for four reasons. A sense of duty. It's a pleasure because in doing so, he's paying his debt to the person who carried the message to him and as an insurance policy against drinking again. So first, it's a duty. Because the truth is, I mean, I'll admit it, sometimes I don't feel like picking up the phone. Sometimes I don't want to take the time. I mean, God hasn't finished with me yet, and I'm still selfish sometimes. So some days, yes, I do it out of sheer duty. But often, and more often as time goes by, it's for the second reason. It's a pleasure. I mean, the more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same. 
the more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same. So then his third reason, because in doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. That's gratitude in action. And I have to tell you, when I hear my sponsee sponsoring someone or speaking at a meeting about how God has removed their food obsession and restored relationships in their lives, like it honestly makes my heart light up with joy. And last, Dr. Bob says, every time he helps someone, he takes out a little more insurance for himself against a possible slip. It is our best insurance policy. Chapter seven, first line says, nothing will so much ensure immunity against alcoholism or compulsive eating as intensive work with other alcoholics or compulsive eaters. Intensive work. Um, Dr. Bob continues by saying, he used to get upset when he saw his friends drink, but realized he couldn't. So he schooled himself to believe that though he once had the same privilege, he abused it so frightfully it was withdrawn. So we can do that. We can say to ourselves, self, I used to have this privilege to be able to do whatever, but I abused that privilege and now I don't have it. Just like if we get into too many car accidents or get too many tickets, we lose the privilege of having a driver's license. Then he just starts talking some uh, bit of tough love. He says, if you think you're an atheist, agnostic, or skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride that keeps you from accepting what's in this book, I feel sorry for you. He calls atheism, agnosticism, skepticism, forms of pride, because that's really me thinking I can do it on my own. And I love how he doesn't say, if you're an atheist, agnostic, a skeptic, says, if you think you're an atheist, agnostic, a skeptic, meaning you may think you are, but you're really not. And I, you know, you can just hear these addicts saying, who are you to tell me what I believe or don't believe in? That's true. This is America, right? I can believe and think what I want. I can think I have no lungs. I can be a lung agnostic and say, I have no lungs, but guess what? I have lungs um, because of course, what I think about having lungs doesn't matter. And our book tells us on page 55 that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So between these two lungs that I may or not, may not believe I have, God planted the fundamental idea of himself. And the big book says this fundamental idea of God inside of us may be obscured by pomp, calamity, worship of other things. We'll go into this in great detail when we do chapter four. Um, you know, we have podcasts on it, but this, this knowledge of God is there. So for now, let's just let it suffice to say, Dr. Bob says, you may think you're an agnostic, but you're not. And it's almost like an invitation. Don't have so much pride. You block yourself off from the sunlight of the spirit. And Dr. Bob continues on with his tough love. If you think you're strong enough to do it on your own, that's your affair. Like we're not here to try to convince you that you need this. But he says, if you really wanna quit for good and all, not just to look good for your high school reunion so that boy who dumped you when you were 17 feels bad, 
if you want to quit for good and all and feel you need help, he says, we know we have the answer for you. And then here's the conditional promise. It never fails, but here's the condition. It never fails if you go about it with one half the zeal you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. I put a lot of zeal into getting my binge foods. I stole food. I stole money for food. I walked the streets of New York City at two in the morning with my rent money. Today, I have to put that kind of zeal into my recovery. And he says, if we do this work, we are promised, promised that it will never fail. And on the last line, he tells us why. He says, our heavenly father will never let us down. down. God will never let us down. I personally believe we are all here because God has launched a search and rescue mission for every single one of us. And he's given us a manual and people to help us so that we can recover and then join him on his search and rescue missions for others, the way that Bill joined and helped to rescue Dr. Bob. Like what a glorious sense of purpose for all of us and what a glorious God and a generous God to give that to all of us. And with that, I pass.